John chapter 13. Grab your Bibles and take a look at those, but um, I'll read that text in just a minute. But just a couple of quick um, things. Don't forget a new members class this afternoon that obligates you to nothing, but it's a mandatory step if you ever intend to pursue membership here. Secondly, um, um, blue cards, guys. Today's the 26th. Uh, Last time you can do it is Friday at 5 p.m., so you can hand them to me. You don't have to find the repository. Just give them to me. I'll see them anyway. Um, If you want it, they're they're in the bulletin. They're in the pews. Go ahead and announce or nominate some. Um, you know, guys, if you've been around Grace Evangelion very long, you know that we're not what you would call a politically um, uh, emphatic church. We don't, we, don't, we don't talk about politics here much because we, we love to talk about the gospel. But interestingly, in the providence of God, we have three men right now that are serving this county. Uh, Wayne Mashburn is the, Shelby clerk, as the county clerk and David Lenore as the, um, as the county treasurer. And then George Chisholm is a county commissioner. And now we have a man who is running for the office of city mayor uh, in, the, in the city of Germantown. Now, if, you're, if you live in Collierville, um, you can take a quick nap. But um, uh, if you live in Germantown, there's a, there's a member of your church who is running for the office of mayor. Uh, his name is George Brogdon. And George and his wife, Denise, have been around Grace Van for a long time. And uh, it, I think they're here because I wanted to introduce them. I asked them to be here. George, are you around here somewhere? There you are. Right? Gosh. Stand up. And, and Denise, stand up too. That's his wife, George and Denise Brogdon. Um, I, I've already voted for them. Now, I'm not trying to tell you who to vote for, but I've already voted for them. Uh, and, and they are members of your church. I, I hope you'll get to know George. And our hope is that God will see fit to put him in that office of influence. George, we're praying for you, brother. Come say hello to George before you leave. And uh, maybe you'll say hello to the new mayor. All right, now you follow as I read, um, beginning in verse 31 of uh, John chapter 13. Uh, It reads like this. So when he had gone out, and by the way, that's Judas. Judas had gone out. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify. Glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little longer, a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, this is... A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The grass withers and the flower fades. But not this. This word endures forever. Guys, um, this book is not a history book. Um, It's not a science book. When it speaks about history and it speaks about science, it speaks reliably and authoritarily. Um, You can trust it. 
Um, it's not a book on systematic theology. It's not a book of apologetics, uh, although both of those things get their source from this book. This is a storybook. It's a book that contains a story. The old, old story. The story of redemption. And that story does not begin in Bethlehem. The story begins in Genesis 3, where God commits himself to save a remnant of a fallen race. This book tells that story. That's what this is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a book describing the story of redemption. Now, it's, um, if it's not obvious, it ought to be that we have come to the climax of that story. The language that you see in, um, in John 13 is language of finality. It's, it's language of consummation. When Jesus says, now has the Son of Man I mean, first of all, that's his favorite term of self-designation. That's the, that's the term that he loves to call himself, the Son of Man. Now has the, is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What a statement. Um, guys, it's, although some of you will say he's a gifted overstater, it's hard to overstate. The, the profundity of these moments and these statements that are being made. You know, on a, on a couple of occasions, Jesus has, um, has said, he said to his mother in John 2, he said to his brothers in John 7, he said, my hour has not yet come. But now his hour has come. You know, in the, uh, in the 11th century, there was a book that was written by a guy named Anselm. I'm sure you've not read it. But um, it, was a, it was a monumental work. Um, and the title of the book was Cordeus Homo. It's a Latin phrase which means, why God man, literally. But the book means, or is about, why did God have to become man? Well, here's your answer. It is for this that the Son of Man has left his home in glory. And I say again, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how dramatic I might be, it is hard for me to overstate the profundity of what is going on in these verses that I just read you. This book is about this. What I read you... In 31 through 35, this book is about that because this book is the story of redemption and the centerpiece of that story of redemption is Christ and him crucified. 
And in that, in that work of Christ, we're told in these verses that God is glorified. You know, that name glory, that word glory or glorified, it's a, it's a very important word in the Bible. It's used often. It's, it's also used five times in the text that I just read you. Um, and no matter how you understand it, and it's a hard word to understand, and how deeply you might want to delve into the etymology of the word, the, the point here is pretty clear. And the point is, at the cross... People would witness the greatest display of God's glory ever. Now, you can figure out what you want to, how you understand the word glory. All I'm telling you is that for its greatest display, it's going to take place at the cross. For Christ, The the cross is the sum total of all that God is and all that God has done or planned to do. The cross is the place of his greatest glory. It is the scene of the consummation of the redemptive story. And that's where we are. That's where we are in this story. We have come to the we have come to the consummation of the redemptive story, and that consummation is at the cross. Guys, the, the cross is not a place of martyrdom, as was suggested in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. It's not a the, the cross is not a place of disgrace. It's not a place of of defeat. In fact, it is a place of unrivaled, unmitigated, undiminished display of God's glory. What you have in these coming moments, which will culminate in Christ dying on a cross, is a willing sufferer the one willing to pay the price for sin, my sin. He was led. He was not driven. He arrives at the cross as Christus Victor. Uh, He was was sent by his father. He was sent by his father to accomplish the father's will. And the father's will is, is that he would die in the place of his people. And that's where we are. Let me, let me just, let, let me tease that out just a little bit. Guys, the father and the son, according to Jesus, the father and the son are glorified here. Maximally. The innocent, willing sufferer dying in the place of the guilty, undeserving sinner performing an act 
that confirms the Father's love for sinners. That, ladies and gentlemen, that. That is the great display of God's glory. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to understand the perfections of God, then you must occupy yourself with a study of the cross. Because it is at the cross where every one of God's perfections are on display. His power. Hebrews 2 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That, at the cross what you see is a display of God overcoming in, in this display of victorious triumphing power, his justice, his sin, the sin that you and I committed is paid for finally, fully, completely, his holiness. The Bible said his eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity, but here he doesn't hesitate to punish that sin in Christ. His faithfulness, he has been promising a Messiah for for millennia and the and the messiah and the messiah has come his love for god so loved the world that he gave it's all on display here ladies and gentlemen his his power his justice his holiness his faithfulness his love it's all on display where at the cross for now jesus says is the Son glorified? And the Father is glorified in Him. Gang, it is the death of Jesus Christ that sets forth the greatest display anywhere to be found of God's glory. Why is that? Well, <laughs> because this book is a story about redemption. And we are at the place in this book where that redemption is being executed to perfection. That is, the redemption that, has been, that we've been hearing about ever since Genesis 3 is being accomplished. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest way to understand the character of God do you hear me? The greatest way to understand the character of God is to study the cross. That's not my opinion. Jesus says, now. Now is the Son of Man glorified and the Father is glorified in him. Gang, it's, it's, a, it's a study of the cross that keeps us from all of these, these silly notions that you see that have cropped up throughout the history of the church. For instance, back in the 60s and the 70s, it was the social gospel. You remember that? 
the World Council of Churches and the social agenda and liberation theology and all that business. In, in, the, in the 80s, it was, um, it was signs and wonders. John Wimber's signs and wonders and that titillation and that, that pursuit of, of experiences. And you remember those, they used to have conferences on holy laughter. Remember that? And then back in the 90s, it was the, it was the church growth movement, the seeker-driven worship service where the, where the customer, the customer was king, the customer was sovereign. And in our day, it's the health and wealth gospel of Joel Osteen and his ilk. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how much cross do you see in any of that? You know, Paul comes to Corinth and he says, I didn't come to preach that, that, or that. Here's what I came to preach. I came to preach Christ and him crucified. Tell me how much cross do you hear from the health and wealth gospel, huh? Jesus says, that's the place I'm best glorified. And yet the message, the message of the 21st century doesn't mention it. Let me say this. The criterion by which you measure the truth of any religious message is how much cross is in it. Because for Jesus, it is the place of his greatest glory. You know, the, the, uh, the world has turned the, the, the world likes Jesus as a great teacher, but they, they don't like this message of the cross. The, the 21st century has turned the cross into not much more than a piece of jewelry. About 15 years ago, John Stott wrote this book. It's, um, it's quite, a, quite a study, and I, I commend it to you. It's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. But in here, he tell, I, I'm pretty sure it's in here. He tells a story about a man who, a true story. Um, a man who goes to a jewelry store and he wants to buy a cross as a necklace. And um, the salesman comes to him and says, well, sir, we have several uh, available to you. Um, just, um, just what kind of cross did you want to buy? And the guy says, oh, I I want that kind with the little man on it. Can I tell you what that little man accomplished on that cross? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. You want to know what the little man accomplished on the cross? You, me, much grain. Much grain is about to be produced. 
grain that includes you and me? How did he produce it? On the cross. And in that cross, ladies and gentlemen, God's perfections, the sum total of all of his perfections, are on display. And it is only by understanding that that we avoid some of this foolishness that goes under the name of Christian preaching. Now, but he goes on in this text. In the midst of this this, this statement of, of his own glory. I, I cannot delve into the mind of the Savior, but apparently one of the things that was on his mind is how you and I, we grains, how it is that we were going to get along. Oh, we like him. The problem is we don't like each other. Of, of, I guess I can say primary importance in the mind of Jesus at this moment is how will these people of mine get along once I'm gone? And so he issues this command. I want you to love one another. <clears throat> Says it three times. Now guys, think about this. He's speaking to a room full of 11 men. Judas is gone. That's what the, the opening seven words say. Judas is out of the room. You remember they're in this upper room thing? And the 11 men are still there. Think about who's in that room. Well, first of all, it's a bunch of men who have had this long discussion about which one is greatest among them. It's the same group that says, I'm not washing anybody's feet. <laughs> not me. Somebody might have done it, but I'm not washing anybody's feet. Also in that room is what's called a zealot. You know what a zealot was, don't you? That was a political party. And their, their pure intention was to overthrow the Roman government. Also in the room was a tax collector. You know what they were? They were collaborators with the very Roman government that the zealots wanted to overthrow. Also in that room is poor pitiful Thomas. Doubting Thomas who would not believe unless you know all that. That group in that upper room was a mess. Yep. Just like this room. And there's nothing upper about this room. It's just filled with a room full of grains. And Jesus is thinking, what, what will ever become of this small band of my followers for whom I'm about to die? Are they doomed to be forever fighting over who's the greatest? Not if they obey this new commandment. And I want you to look at it, ladies and gentlemen, because there's something profound in it. I want you to love one another, Jesus says, as just like. I have loved you. Guys, really, there's nothing new about the command. 
you can find it in Leviticus 19. The content of the law of the commandment is not new, but the extent of the commandment is new. What Jesus does in his death is that he sets for us this limitless boundary that's supposed to describe the love that we have for one another. Love is to be the prominent disposition of us Christians. Now, think with me just for a minute. First of all, it's kind of humbling. Don't you think that we've got to be commanded to love one another? Left to ourselves, we wouldn't do it. So we've got to get commanded three times. But to me, even more intriguing than that, is that Jesus is in the midst of a conversation where he's talking about his own glory. And it's in that occasion, in these minutes, during these statements, that he reminds us. I mean, don't you think there would be something else on his mind besides us loving one another? But in this great conversation about the display of my glory, the thing that's in his mind is, oh, you know, you people need to love one another. And, and, and take this next step with me. That means, I think, by way of implication, if we don't love one another, then apparently we have not been overwhelmed with that display of glory he's, he's just mentioned. Gang, the cross establishes the extent of our love in that it tells us, it reminds us of how we've been loved. Do you get that? I want you to love one another, says Jesus, as, as I have loved you. So how am I supposed to love you? You me. Like, like he loved us. And then he goes out in a matter of hours and gives us a very excruciating example. His cross. And let me add this, guys. You know, one of the huge dimensions of Christ's work for us is that he forgives our sin, okay? Everybody knows that, don't you? I mean, that's just a part of his work. We get forgiveness, okay? So if I'm supposed to love like he loves me, then a very huge part of my loving you is forgiving you when you offend me and I, when you, I offend you, we're supposed to forgive. Gang. To fail to forgive each other is to overtly disobey the new commandment. This one that Jesus is giving us right as he's talking about the display of his glory. An unforgiving man is an unforgiven man. Gang, listen to me. If you're out there 
holding some kind of grudge. You are in outright rebellion. Let it go. Well, how, Dr. Gallagher? Well, here's how. You go examine that cross where you see this display of the willing sufferer on your behalf. And then listen to him as he says, I want you to love one another the way that I loved you. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, in that last verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus in that statement gives to the pagan world the right to judge the integrity of our discipleship based on how we love one another. Did you get that? They have a right given to them by Jesus to poo-poo everything that you and I hold dear if we don't obey the new commandment. Now, guys, I, I, um, how are we doing around here with that? Um, I heard of one this week, kind of a broken relationship. Gang, I know we've got different personalities. I mean, there's no more bizarre personality in this room than mine. We've got different temperaments. We've got, we've got different social statuses. But tell me, what difference does that make if you know, number one, that you're a grain, and number two, you know what it is that produced that grain. What was it that produced the grains? The same act. The same act that produced me produced you. And it was the death of Jesus Christ. When you know these things, and feed off of them, then loving each other becomes more of a possibility. I want to tell you a story, and then I'm done. When I went to seminary, I went to seminary in 1972, and back then it was a three-year deal. You had your freshman year, your middler year, and your senior year. I think they've stretched it to four, but when I went, there was only three years. And each year you're there, they're trying to teach you how to be a preacher. You know, I failed all three of those courses. Um, But so the first year, you preach in front of a camera, they, they film it, and then they bring this woman in who's a, who's, whose expertise was just diction, and she goes over it with you and tells you you don't say Christ, you say Christ. Um, so that's the first year. The second year, and by the way, you take homiletics courses. Homiletics is just preaching, preaching courses, homiletics courses. You take them every year. Um, and the second year, you preach in front of your, your class, in the classroom, you preach in front of them in your homiletics class, at least in my, in my experience. The third year, your senior year, you preach what was called the senior sermon. 
it, you, you preached it before. The whole student body at our seminary, we had chapel four days a week, Tuesday through Friday. On Thursdays, we always had senior sermons where the seniors would get up and preach these sermons to the student body plus the faculty. We affectionately call these things senior sacrifices because they were bloody. Um, and what, because they were bloody because after the, 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 the senior preached, he stepped down and sat down in a pew and the faculty would stand up all over the, um, the, the auditorium and critique the sermon and, and uh, you know, evaluate what, what went on up there, you know, for the benefit of all of us. Well, the guy who was the head of the homiletics department was a guy by the name of Bodie, Richard Bodie. If you ever heard of what a curmudgeon, Richard Bodie was a curmudgeon. He was kind of a dried up old guy, kind of plump around. He looked real old and he never grinned. He didn't have any friends and everybody, nobody really, you know, cared for Richard Bodie, but he kind of, but he was, he was, he was the last one to speak at every senior sacrifice. Well, um, on one occasion, and by the way, your texts were assigned to you. You didn't get to pick a text. They assigned you a text. And so one senior sermon was, um, <clears throat> was a guy by the name of T.J. Mercer. T.J. was a senior. I was a freshman, and, and he, was a, he was a good guy. He was a little country bumpkin dude. Uh, he, he, everybody loved TJ. He was kind of a fix-it man. The seminary hired him and, and he would go from house to house and apartment to apartment and, and fix your washing machine or your air conditioner. He was just, he was just a much beloved part of the, the student body, TJ Mercer. So one Thursday, it was TJ Mercer's, um, time to preach his senior sermon and his assigned text was that one. John 13, 31 through 35. And so he preached it. And it was awful. It was, it was, it was more awful than normal. Because of all of them were awful. But his was super awful. And so TJ got down and sat in the pew and the faculty started standing up and, you know, critiquing Mr. Mercer. You know, and it was, just, and all of the student, the rest of the student body would just, you know, listening, because it wasn't us they were talking about. They were talking about somebody else, this poor slob. And, um, and then, towards the end, the last spokesman was Bodie. Richard Bodie, the homiletics professor. Bodie stood up and he said, turned around to the student body and he said, Gentlemen, One has to earn his right to preach from John 13, 31 through 35. Mr. Mercer has earned his right. Now, my brother and sister in Christ, let's go earn ours. Let's go earn the right to tell the world that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Oh, they love him. They just don't like that message about the cross. Let's go demonstrate to them just how real it is. How? How you say, Dr. Young? Oh. 
by loving one another. You know, guys, um, Isaac Watts, in his great hymn, the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he doesn't say, when I look at the cross, when I talk about the cross. He says, when I survey. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain. I count the loss. And I pour contempt. On all my pride. We do that. And I think we'll find loving one another more of a possibility. Oh God, what a what a passage, what a statement, what a what a privilege it is to preach it. And I pray, oh God, that you will use these admonitions on the part of our Savior to remind us of who we are. We're nothing but grain. All pieces of grain produced by the same great act on a cross. And the one that produced us is the one that tells us, commands us to love each other. Oh, Father, might we earn that right to tell the world where we as beggars found bread. We found it given to us as the gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ. So raise up, raise up a bunch of people so overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus Christ that we would not dare fail in loving one another. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.